Welcome to the Critical Digital Pedagogy podcast. In this podcast, Matthew Acevedo talks about his chapter, The Panoptic Gaze and the Discourse of Academic Integrity. All right. Okay. Hi, Matt. Um, my first question is not about the chapter at all. <laughs> it's just I want to ask you just uh, if you can tell me something about yourself, really. Um, just just for a little bit of context for the chapter. So can you just tell me what your job is and where you work? Sure. So I'm approaching this from two different lenses. One is my uh, quote unquote day job. Uh, which is I'm the director of learning, innovation and faculty engagement at the University of Miami. We affectionately call that life. Um, and uh, I lead a team of instructional designers and faculty developers that work alongside faculty to tackle educational challenges and uh, work on course design projects and things like that. Uh, the other lens that I'm approaching this through is uh, as an instructor. So I teach at the very large uh, public institution down the road a few miles from my day job, uh, Florida International University, where I teach at the FIU Honors College. Uh, I teach undergraduates there, and I also teach uh, instructional design and development classes for the Department of Educational Policy Studies. So uh, approaching it from sort of two different perspectives, one as an educational developer and, and one uh, as, a, as an adjunct faculty member. And um, I don't know... I've- I don't know either of those two institutions. Are they similar or are they different? Um, totally different. Uh, <laughs> ge- geographically quite close. I think it's probably eight or ten uh, miles between the two institutions. Uh, the University of Miami is a private institution. Uh, we're ranked in the top 50 U.S. news and world reports for uh, uh, college rankings, if, if that's a thing that matters to anybody. Um, uh, small private school uh fairly residential, traditional uh, college students. Um, Florida International University down the road is a very large public institution with, I don't know, roughly 60,000 students um, considered a a commuter school. It's a Hispanic serving institution. So uh, lots of students from a Hispanic background, uh, generally a little bit of an older population if you were looking at averages in some place like the University of Miami. So very different institutions. Uh, although geographically very Miami-centric. A big part of your chapter is about academic integrity and digital processes such as virtual proctoring. And virtual proctoring is sort of coming into the news now, especially in terms of the UK and what what people are talking about in terms of learning technology. But can you tell me something about these two terms, academic integrity and why virtual proctoring has become part of that debate. Yeah, absolutely. So academic integrity uh, is is something that I critique in, in the chapter. Um, so to me, integrity, academic integrity is a shorthand that institutions use for responsibilizing students to act in ways that are expected by the institution. So this is to exhibit obedience to authority, particularly in matters of assessment of learning. 
so this is associated with things like cheating and plagiarism. I consider these sort of the two main rallying cries of academic integrity. And academic integrity sort of signals the officially sanctioned role of students under these headings. Um, so this is related to things like high stakes assessments, like, um, like big exams. Um, virtual proctoring is a form of test proctoring that uses students' webcams and microphones to surveil them while they take tests. Uh, so in some forms of this, a live human proctor will watch a number of students simultaneously and, and remotely. Uh, so one of these companies is called ProctorU, and if you find uh, uh, an Inside Higher Ed article from a few years ago, there's a great photo of their offices, of the different proctors watching, watching students in, in their, uh, their monitors, and it's very, to me, it's very dystopian. Uh, another form of virtual proctoring uses artificial intelligence to analyze students' eye movements and other behaviors to, to calculate and quantify possible instances of cheating. So these are our digital technologies that I try to problematize uh, along with the discourse of academic integrity in, in the chapter. Um, so these, these ideas of, of virtual proctoring of, of watching students uh, in their in the privacy, the not so privacy of their own homes. Um, in the chapter, I compare this to the Panopticon, um, which, if you're not familiar, it's it's an architectural model of a prison uh, proposed by the English philosopher Jeremy Bentham. So the arrangement of the the prison in in this model is the cells are arranged on the edges of a circular structure, and they face inward toward a central guard tower. Um, and in the guard tower, the, the guard or the overseer can watch any particular cell at any given moment, but the inmates can't tell when they're being watched. So the, the inmate is compelled at all times to act as though they're being watched. If that's sort of hard to visualize, then you can, you can Google Panopticon and, and look at some of the, like the blueprints and the, the models for it. Uh, so Michel Foucault, in one of his very famous books, Discipline and Punish, uh, extended the logic of the panopticon to uh, power, re power relations in contemporary society. And um, to me, this mirrors very closely the relations between students and faculty members in this context of, of uh, academic integrity. So really, the, the issue and one of the main takeaways from the chapter is that the, the means that institutions and institutional agents like faculty members use to enforce, quote unquote, enforce academic integrity. So virtual proctoring, plagiarism, detection tools uh, and so on. These create the high stakes environments that drive students to feel the need to, quote unquote, cheat. You, your chapter talks about um, different ways that universities also approach this issue of academic integrity as well can you is that based on your experience of working in your different institutions or more a general point yeah so i think the way that academic integrity manifests might be different among institutions um these might be honor codes or academic honesty policies or different procedures in place to punish violators different ways to coerce students into following these expectations. So uh, my home institution, the University of Miami, positions academic integrity in their honor code within the, to me, the, the neoliberal language of, quote, fostering a fair, uh, a climate of fair competition, which it, I think it's a little bizarre to, to put uh, cheating and academic integrity in terms of competition. 
Um, so the way these things manifest can be different in different institutions, but at the same time, uh, the intention behind them is generally the same. If we think of the word integrity as doing the right thing, uh, academic integrity is a code for students doing the right thing as narrowly defined by the institution. Um, rarely, if ever, is there a substantial expectation for instructors, uh, faculty members, and, and others to do the right thing, which is how I ultimately suggest we reframe academic integrity in the chapter. Okay, we'll come on to that in a bit. Sure. My, my next question, I'm going to sound like a journalist now. I'm going to take a little quote from your chapter and take it completely out of context sure. and, and ask you this question. So at one point in your chapter, you note, and I'll quote, students are the moral equivalent of criminals. And that's quite a strong statement. Obviously, I've taken it just out yeah. of any sort of context whatsoever. But could you explain that a little bit more, what you meant by that? Yeah, ab absolutely. So to clarify, uh, that idea isn't my own opinion. This is how I'm describing how students are generally understood in the discourse of academic integrity. So uh, if you look at the, the scholarly literature that uh, has explored academic integrity, the way they, they, they frame the issue is... Um, is really sort of exaggerated and, and dramatic. Uh, you know, there's there's some quotes in the chapter uh, from some of the literature out there, like cheating has become one of the major problems in education today. And really, of all the problems in education, I, I don't think cheating is is a major one. It's also been discussed as an as an epidemic, or um, college faculty members face a continual battle to maintain integrity in their classrooms, which uses the language of like violence and war in relation to their interactions with yeah, students. We, we see these headlines in the press in the UK all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so really the way that students are positioned in the discourse of academic integrity is, uh, is about students, like their moral failings, uh, their, their lack of commitment to academics, their, uh, their, quote, neutralizing attitude that justifies their immoral actions to themselves and others. And and really, I just I don't think that these statements are true. I mean, I feel a little funny even saying this, but I think students, by and large, go to college because they want to learn something and they want to apply themselves and they want to get something out of it. So all of this this discourse and the the, the discussion about uh, students are lazy and immoral and we need to to catch them in the act, it, to me, it, it criminalizes students in the educational enterprise, which I, I don't think is the, um, the, the ideal relationships that we want to have with students. Uh, I mean, going back to Foucault and Discipline and Punish for a second, he argued that prisons themselves create the conditions that lead to the formation of criminal organizations. They release inmates under conditions that leave them unable to find legitimate unemployment, uh, sorry, legitimate employment. Um, and I think the use of these high stakes assessments and these invasive technologies in service of quote unquote academic integrity, um, I think they do more to create environments that cause cheating than they do to actually address them. And if you add to this the precarious nature of uh, increasing tuition rates, uh, at least in the, the U.S., um, the, the difficulty maintaining scholarships, uh, the increasing uh, issues around student debt. I just I don't think that the underlying factors that cause students to cheat. I, I think these factors deserve a much more substantive investigation and one that doesn't necessarily start with pointing the finger at students themselves. 
Okay, thanks, Matt. Um, so therefore, if if the, um, this panopticon and these associated technologies, these virtual proctorings, if they're not the answer, what's your alternative? And again, your chat. Maybe you can talk generally about what your alternative is, and then your chapter talks. You give some really good examples, so I'd love just to spend a little bit of time if you could just explain some of the examples, some of the things that you are doing with your students as alternatives to these quite evasive systems. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think virtual proctoring is not the answer. So you asked me uh, if they're not the answer, what's the alternative? And I think virtual proctoring is not the answer to a question we shouldn't be asking, which is how do we catch and punish these evildoers invading our classrooms? Um, so in the chapter, I suggest that we just we reframe the discourse of academic integrity that shifts the responsibility of quote unquote doing the right thing from students to ourselves as institutions, instructors, educational developers, or other institutional agents. How can we do the right thing for our students? How can we think of academic integrity in such a way that we responsibilize teachers to create learning environments that promote things like creativity or expression or synthesis and, and dissent, the, the critical thinking skills that we want our, our students to have? So if if we're thinking in the context of critical digital pedagogy, I think we can consider a spectrum of uses of digital technologies, right? On one end, we have these panoptic technologies that surveil students and are intentionally designed to limit student behaviors. And on the other end, we have technologies that can expand what students do. There's so much our students can do with technology that allow that allows them to be creators and collaborators and to express themselves and I, I think these are, are things we should uh, be leaning on more. Yeah I mean you what what I really want you to do is because it, you did it so well in the chapter is talk about some of those examples and um, I feel very envious of you because you seem to teach a whole course about the wire. <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm just getting the wrong end of the stick on that one, but it sounds <laughs> like a great course. Um, so if you're not using these sort of um, invasive forms of surveillance, what are you doing to kind of assess your students? Uh, right. So this this part of the chapter is is very reflective about my own experience and my own approach. It's not intended to be like a top five things you can do to promote academic integrity or here's the recipe for exemplary course design. But there are things that I keep in mind when I design and teach and interact with students. So the the examples that I, I use in the chapter are from that class that you mentioned. Um, it's, it's a seminar for the uh, FIU Honors College called Urban Inequality and, and HBO's the, the, the Wire, where we use the very famous HBO TV program, The Wire, uh, in concert with scholarly materials to examine social issues such as crime and policing, race and class, neoliberalism, political participation, education, the media, and so on. Uh, so there are a few strategies that I employ or, or philosophies that I consider. It's um, not just about like, watching the TV series then. No, no, no. I'm it's, joking, it's, I'm joking. Yeah, it's, it's not a it's So not you a go film much class. deeper and you're bringing these, you know, these theories into it, into analyzing the program through the program. Exactly. So it's not a it's not a film studies class or a TV studies class where we just watch the show. Uh, we use the, the show The Wire as sort of a, a realistic window into 
uh, the urban world to, to investigate these, these issues. Um, so one of the strategies that I, I, um, I use is ungrading. Um, a couple years ago, I stopped issuing grades on assignments. Um, this is something that's uh, increasingly popular. If you do a, a Twitter search for ungrading, you'll you'll find a bunch of people who are, are trying it or, or having experiences with it. Uh, so instead of issuing grades, I provide detailed narrative feedback on all of the assignments, um, noting areas where students excel or other things that I may want them to reconsider. I invite resubmission on all work based on the feedback, although that's that's pretty rare. Um, so I think we know that grades themselves don't provide great feedback. Uh, we know they have a role in causing anxiety and feelings of, of competition. So instead, I provide input and constructive critique. I ask follow-up questions. I share my own experiences and perspectives. And really, I try to start a conversation. Um, the At the end of every semester that I teach, the, the feedback that I get from students about ungrading is, is really amazing, and it affirms my decision to continue doing it. So lots of comments about how students felt they had a safe space to express themselves without fear of being wrong or getting a bad grade. And, and that's exactly what I want. So, so um, Matt, my obvious question then is you yeah. work in an institution. Yes. You must have to give grades yes. that go into the institutional system. Yes. How do you how do you overcome or how do you get past that or how do you manage that system? So, yeah. Yeah, uh, the institution requires that I enter grades at the end of every term. Uh, what I do is I ask my students what grade they would like me to put in on their behalf. Um, so what grade do you want me to enter for you? And a, a one or two sentence explanation of why they think that's appropriate. Uh, you know, I do have some fine print in the syllabus that I'll retain the right to override anything if absolutely necessary. But Overwhelmingly, the, the reason that I might override someone's grade is if they're an exemplary student and they've been too hard on themselves. Uh, I sense a, a lot of, um, a, a lot of sort of like them being too hard on themselves or having imposter syndrome. So sometimes I'll increase their grade to, to an A, um, just so that their own imposter syndrome or their own anxieties don't uh, cause a hit on their GPA. It's exceedingly rare where I've I've had to uh, change a grade downward. But yes, I have to in, I have to provide grades to the institution. There's there's no way around that. Um, so I I ask students for their own input. Honestly, I think no no one's a better judge of who's um, put something into the class and gotten something out of the class and learned something than the students themselves. That sounds great. Can you can you give me one other example? And um, you talk about other things like honouring the plurality of their experiencing experiences, um, embracing open endedness was another one. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh. Uh, yeah, and I think the last one was enabling students as creators. Yeah. So I'll I'll discuss uh, what I call embracing open open endedness. So. Life really rarely has clear-cut answers in a way that a high-stakes multiple-choice exam might make it seem like it does. Um, life is much more open-ended than that. Um, so, for example, I, I assign an article in in this class called uh, "Race, Crime, and the Pool of Surplus Criminality," or "Why the War on Drugs Was a War on Blacks." 
Uh, this article sort of extends the Marxist theory of surplus labor to argue that black Americans have been disproportionately targeted in the American war on drugs. So in a reflective writing prompt, I asked students to evaluate the argument using references to both the TV show The Wire and to what they've experienced real life. And uh, I taught this course uh, this past summer of, of 2020, where, uh, as I'm sure you've heard, there were uh, lots of um, pertinent events relating to uh, racial violence. Head <laughs> in the sand, really. Yeah, too, uh, it, it was an it was an amazing time to to teach this course um, because there there was no way to make it more relevant to their lives. So I, I asked the students to evaluate the argument, and and it's a thing where there aren't really right or wrong answers necessarily. Um, and I I want them to use that sort of evaluative thinking. Uh, in relation to these potentially divisive and controversial topics. And I think that's a good example of embracing open edit. It's very different than a, a high stakes test where you pick A, B, C, or D. Um, the, the degree of cognitive complexity and critical thought that I expect of my students is, um, is, is much higher. And some of this is also getting rid of rubrics, right? So I, I don't, I used to use rubrics for many years in as an educational developer. I, I worked with plenty of faculty members on, on creating rubrics. I stopped using rubrics. I, I threw them all away. Um, <laughs> the, the, there's something that the UK audience is less familiar with, to be honest. I mean, we do have them in Britain, but they're not used probably as extensively as they are in the US. But um, I don't want to get into a discussion about rubrics because okay. it's about time. No, okay. No, you gave us two really good examples there. So thank you for that. If the listeners want to actually explore your other examples, they're going to have to read the chapter. All right. <laughs> is there anything else you want to highlight from the chapter before we end up? Is there anything else that I've kind of not had a chance to touch on that you'd like to highlight at all? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to, to be a part of this book project. I look forward to, uh, seeing it in print and, and I appreciate, uh, the opportunity to, to chat with you, Chris. Thanks so much. Thank you, Matt. Brilliant. Thank you. The book on which this podcast series is based. Critical Digital Pedagogy in Higher Education, Broadening Horizons, Bridging Theory and Practice is published by Athabasca University Press. Music is by BioUnit and is available on a Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org.